0: of footy. I love the finals because teams seem to shift and turn up a gear and players also next level it or so it feels to me anyway. It's like when you turn the saturation dial up and everything is enhanced and heightened with intensity and emotion and so much color. Finals week one was definitely the best weekend of footy all year. And every game had explosive elements and everything you want in a footy game, from anticipation, excitement, comebacks, and chaos, to patience sometimes, panic and pain, and in some cases, a fairy tale, fear, elation, and overall exhaustion, I would say, by the end of it. It was especially nice to see a final in front of a crowd, something we weren't even sure would happen at the start of the season, I remember how far away the finals seemed, and even the possibility of having people there seemed truly remote months ago. Something about seeing all the people in the crowd though just gave me so much hope for the future in sport and in life. And honestly, all of the matchups looked good from the outset and in advance, and I wanted to see all of them, though the wake-up calls were kind of rough in this time zone as opposed to in New York City, but it didn't disappoint. <laughs> I hope you all got your footy fill and fix, and I know I'm really looking forward to this weekend's semifinals too. So let's get into it and dive into the opening overture of my overall thoughts on the week and where NYC is now. The daily average positive cases in New York City are above a thousand for the first time since early June, so that's pretty alarming. And I'm still following along with all of the info since we are going back. And I feel like movie theaters are really the only things that aren't open along with performing arts and music venues, so festivals and concert venues and music industry adjacent venues aren't open. The concert venues I've peeped at are potentially scheduling dates for December though. And by the way, virtual concerts have been such an interesting experience, something I never thought I would say or I'd say that I would do. And honestly, there's a whole list of things that I've now done during isolation or I've really gotten into that I never thought I'd say that I would do. I've attended or watched, however you would put this, two virtual concerts, and I loved both of them. They were very different. I watched the virtual production of a sitcom, two sitcom actor reunions, (laughs) and I watched part of an award ceremony, I watched part of the Emmy Awards, and I also watched part of the message for a virtual high school graduation, since it was the Shits Creek cast. But Utah is a completely different environment in the best sense. And a listener asked me recently why we left. And I just wanna make it clear that we just wanted to isolate with more space because Andrew and I can work remotely. And we're still being cautious, but we're spending more time outdoors because there's wide open space and we're surrounded by lots of recreation areas, some of which are not really being used. So that's been really great because we kind of have it all to ourselves. But what are some of the things that you've tried or you've really gotten into and really enjoyed during the pandemic that you never really thought you would do? House Party was something I loved at the beginning, too, and chatting with my family through that. I'll probably have to get into that more again. But my email is aflfootyobsessed at gmail and aflobsessed on Twitter if you'd like to share. But now we're on to act one with my game recaps for finals week one. In the Power versus the Cats game, it was hard because I really couldn't wait to watch this game, so I couldn't really sleep, and I got around two hours before it. But it was early Thursday morning, since we're in the southwest U.S., at 3.40 in the morning and I guess my first impression was that it was just really nice to see the final in front of a crowd, but what a game. I feel like the Cats were in control at first for the first half, even though there were lots of questionable ump calls, of course. There were lots of brutal hits. I mean, Dangerfield got hit directly in the face, and later he was sprinting off to a goal, but I feel like the power came back from halftime supercharged up, And there were so many great moments, but there were also some scary ones too with like Durzma's concussion, where he kind of laid there for a while and it just looked like he wasn't gonna get up. But my two fave moments, definitely Dixon. You know it has to be a Dixon moment. (laughs) Hopping over the boundary when he kind of stopped himself from running into it. And then he just kind of sat with the fans for a second. Absolutely my favorite moment. And how awesome if you were there to see, (laughs) he ended up just kind of sitting next to you. And Marshall sealing the deal for the power because they won by 16 points. And in the Lions versus Tigers game, which was early Friday morning at 3.50 a.m., I was better prepared for this start time. I went to bed slightly early, but I still woke up at 3 a.m. in my excitement. And this was the game I was most looking forward to because I just love Fagan. (laughs) And it was such a funny start with Dima kind of running onto the field for the anthem, and I loved how he bookended the lineup with Jack Revolt and they were both mouthing the words to the anthem. That really speaks to the American patriotic part of me, because every American I know will stand and kind of sing along, or at least mouth the words when you go to a sporting event, <laughs> And it was really fun to see the different personalities of the coaches. I always love seeing the stance the coaches will take. One was laughing, and the other was stern and just all business. But Daniel Rich, who you guys know I love, thumped a kick and opening goal that was amazing. And then Reval answered, and this is just the way it went for the entire first half of the game. And there was a point where Dusty was kind of left alone and not tagged for a quarter, which was interesting. But overall, I really loved the intensity, the pressure, the accuracy of the kicks. I feel like both teams were ready and came fighting, and there was a lot of hot footy in the pocket. And this kind of went evenly along until the third quarter when the Lions broke out with a 20-point lead. And you couldn't help but keep thinking that the next kick will just be a massive one for either them or for Richmond because it kind of had to come back. But my fave moment was when the camera panned to Ash Barty in the crowd watching and then her celebrating and getting up and kind of punching the air. And she had like a beer in her hand when Rioli got a goal. And... I just love Ash Barty. I saw her at the U.S. Open back in 2017. So it was a really fun moment for me to kind of see her watching footy and loving it as much as she does. But then you could kind of start to feel Richmond and the crowd and the commentators start doing the math Like, what's the greatest margin of points Dima has given up this season, and what teams were able to make a comeback and from how many points this season? So I definitely tipped the Lions on this one. I'm sorry to my Richmond listeners, and it might have been obvious in my tweets while I was watching, but it was really anyone's game, really, and the Lions ended up winning by 15 points. And as for the elimination finals with no second chances, for the Saints versus Bulldogs game, it was a pretty even first half with the Bulldogs slightly ahead of the first and St. Kilda slightly ahead end of the second. But St. Kilda kind of took off in the third quarter. Patty Ryder had a really great game, and I think he had goal number 257. But you could really feel the Saints' energy because it was their first final in 10 years, and 14 of the players were playing their first final for the Saints. And 10 out of their best 22 started somewhere else, which is something to think about later. But the Saints were dominant in the air with intercept marks, even though the Bulldogs caught up and made for a really exciting contest. But the Saints hung on and they managed to win by three points, which was the smallest final winning score since the 1966 grand final. And Naughton too, especially, he had a couple of spectacular grabs. He literally fractured his cheekbone and had surgery and kind of went out there. So you think of how tough the AFL players are. And in the last two minutes, Patty Ryder got injured. So that was really disappointing since he played with so much heart and it was a really great win for the Saints. But my fave moment from the game was definitely when they cut to CEO Gil McLaughlin in the crowd who was at the footy, just kind of sitting casually there. And I just love that even when he's off duty, he wants to go to the footy. Like that man is all of us in our love for footy. He's obviously in the right field and industry. But it just illustrates in some ways how footy has gotten us all through this year. In the Eagles versus Pies game, this was a really good game. And I just have to say off the bat, you already know what my favorite moments were when Mason Cox kicked two goals in a minute and then a third, all within five minutes of the first quarter. Reminding everyone of kind of that 2018 prelim final against Richmond, and he put Collingwood in the lead for that. But the Eagles came back in the second half and led. Also every mind check moment, since I just love watching him play, but this game was so close all the way up until the end. And even I was totally shocked and not expecting it because it looked like the Eagles kept attacking. And then the final moments, it seemed like they were literally about to get a goal and upset everything right at the end. But it was really courageous of Collingwood, and one of their greatest finals wins, I think, they were very much the underdog, and they literally won by a point. So it's still one of the greatest games I've seen this season, and I've definitely had it kind of playing in the background more than once <laughs> following I don't know if you saw the lead up to the game also because of quarantine restrictions, but there were literally six Collingwood staff members who had to sleep in camper vans because they ran out of rooms. But both teams walked away with no injuries that game. And I think that's really crazy when you're watching such hard bumps and tackles and the intensity that everyone kind of went at that game. But that was definitely like the best kind of footy. Okay, it's intermission, so quickly during this time, let's just cut away to other sports. It was a big weekend for sport too, otherwise. The NBA Finals have been pretty good. I don't know if you've been catching them, but the Lakers are now 3-1 against the Miami Heat. As for the NFL, everyone's starting to ask questions about their attempt to play through the pandemic. And this takes me back to the AFL hub debate earlier in the season. But after having pretty good results during training camp, there were only seven overall player infections from August 12th to September 19th. The first quarter of the season has produced quite a few protocol violations and positive test results and also a few team outbreaks. So there's no indication at this point that the league would consider transitioning to a tighter bubble. So they have to keep evolving and kind of enhancing their protocols, which an ESPN article pointed out is an implicit acknowledgement that the previous iteration wasn't sufficient. So there are talks about how none of this would be an issue if they were in a true bubble. And I know there's a lot of questions about what the workaround would be to effectively across 8,000 team employees monitoring on a weekly basis. So I really wonder how that's going to play out. But again, I think they really could take a cue from the AFL and how they've managed to get through their entire season. And now we're on to Act 2, where I have discussions about relevant footy topics and issues, and I just have to give mad props to the Victorian teams who made it through to the final series. All five teams, there have been tough calls this season, and since the players and teams were given 21 potential days to hub initially, and it ended up ballooning into over three months for multiple clubs, that's why there's genuinely no asterisk on the season for me this year, and calling. Longwood and Richmond specifically have had significant off-field issues too, but they got it together and the players and teams fought hard to make it to the end. So I just have to applaud the five teams who made it through. And at the same time, on the other side of the coin, there's a bit more of a struggle and challenges with some other clubs. So I wanted to talk about the big topic of the moment which is what's happening at Essendon. There's been a lot of speculation about the culture, management, coaching, and playing group. And it's been a consistent topic since the home and away season ended, even though it really addresses wider issues from long before then. But there have been players that have been looking to leave. Danaher wanted out. And in fact, that was a topic in our inaugural episode (laughs) way back in October. But Saad is looking to bounce, Fantasia wants to go home, McKenna did go home, and there are rumors that Merritt is unhappy with one year left on his contract, and there's just general discontent in the playing group overall. So there's been a lot of buzz about it in media and on all the different shows. And I've often wondered myself what it is about all these bright-eyed and bushy-tailed players that come in and they start off really invigorated with a spark and a fire, and we think they're definitely going to scale the heights and just reach all the pinnacles. But then they kind of plateau and stay in this lane where they don't seem to even reach their personal potential. I'm thinking about quite a few players. Obviously, there are some standouts that I'm not including in that. But the question really is, or I guess my question really, is what is happening to make them either okay with that or not strive for better or more? And they're just being comfortable getting to finals. Like, where is the disconnect? So, the best article for me was a great one by Rocco, Rowan Connolly for footiology called Wake Up Essendon Your Culture Needs Fixing First. And the best conversation for me recently was the debate on Footy Classified on Wednesday night. So it's probably the best discourse I've felt, the article and the debate, which kind of addresses different points and a breakdown of where the disconnect is coming from. Is it management? Is it the overall culture of the club? Is it like coaching style? The fact that we had two coaches this season, but what exactly is pointing to a toxic culture and why can't we keep players? So those are really great reads if you wanna check that out and I'll leave on my Twitter links to both. The only part I didn't agree with on Footy Classified was the second wave of like an exodus of players due to the drug scandal previously. But Ross Lyon also pointed out how the mechanics and dynamics of a playing group have to align in order for the teams to have success. And I thought that was such a great point because you could have all the mechanics but not have the dynamic there. And you could have the dynamics but not have the mechanics in place. So also Rossline, are you free? (laughs) But yeah, it's more than just a playing list crisis. And it's something that I've thought a lot about. And I would love to know your thoughts. Especially if you're an Essendon supporter on this topic specifically, my email is aflfootyobsessed at gmail and aflobsessed on Twitter if you want to chat. And now for the curtain call and the spotlight segment. I just wanted to throw some beams on Caroline Wilson, who is a sports journalist known for being the chief football writer for The Age from 1999 to 2017, and she was the first woman to cover Australian rules football full-time. So a little about Caro. She was born and raised in Melbourne, and her father was Ian Wilson, who was president of the Richmond Football Club from 1974 to 1985, so she grew up entrenched in footy. And as a sports journalist, she covered numerous sports, but she started covering football in 1982, and during that same year, she became the first woman to cover Aussie Rules footy. And Caroline has worked in the UK and Europe, where she covered four Wimbledons, three british opens the fa cup final and the british soccer rides for the melbourne herald sun and she's won numerous awards in 1989 she became the first woman to win the afl's gold media award in 1999 she was the afl players association football writer of the year and for 18 years as i said she was the chief football writer for the age Caroline has had numerous segments and appearances on radio and in television over the years, and she's won, like I said, a ton of media awards. She is a multiple winner of the AFL Media Association Awards, including Most Outstanding Football Writer and Most Outstanding Feature Writer. And in 2010, Caroline was presented with an Australian Sports Commission Media Award for Lifetime Achievement for her contribution to sports journalism, and that was a decade ago. There's a really great article she wrote for The Age in 2017 at the time that she was stepping down from her role, and the title was, What Does Caroline Wilson Know About Football?, where you can really kind of see her sense of humor, her personality, and she talks about her experience and her first breaking interviews and some of the pushback she's received being in the industry and in the role. And now you can see her on Footy Classify, where she was an inaugural host along with Hutchie. And she does one of my favorite segments called Caro's Arrow, where she kind of takes aim and targets a person, a club, or an issue. And some really fun details. She's been called Footy's First Lady every Monday night by Hutchie, who is also on Footy Classified with her and one of my fave media peeps. And I thought it was really interesting that Caro promised herself she would be the chief writer for two full football seasons. She never thought she would make a long-term go for it. And the sports editor who appointed her departed the role a week before she began hers. And his successor kind of confessed to her he was uncomfortable attaching the label chief football writer to an early story because some of the male colleagues in sport were a bit put out by her having the title. But i really love her journey and how she kind of rose through the ranks and she was pretty revolutionary if you think about it for the time period definitely through the 2000s even having any kind of female commentator there was a struggle and to be a head female writer i think is pretty revolutionary you may not always agree with her views but i appreciate that she doesn't tone her opinions down because if she were a man personally i think she wouldn't even be questioned so coming from an Essendon supporter you know the respect is real and here's some of her words and joining us in the studio at 17 minutes past seven o'clock 12 degrees outside is in fact caroline wilson 3aw's resident tv expert i mean linda's right i remember the first ever football writers dinner i was asked to and the football writers association said i couldn't go because although i was a football writer they didn't want me to be a member because they'd never had a woman member before. There'd, there'd been people like Claudia Wright who'd gone into the dressing rooms, Corrie Perkin who'd covered it full-time at the age for one season, but they'd they'd never been allowed to be members. And a few people pushed and said that I should go. And I walked in and, and the person who was, I think it was at, at Princess Park, at a, at a sort of a reception room there, the person running the show said to me, you must be a waitress, this is where the aprons are. I mean, no kidding. I mean, people say, oh, come on. It's true. I mean, they thought I was a waitress and all the speeches were gentlemen and Caroline, gentlemen and Caroline. So, I mean, you could say it was a nightmare, but it actually taught me, it, it probably made me tougher. And it probably gave me a lot of confidence. So to Caroline Wilson, we applaud you for your efforts. And we say encore for breaking not legs, but ground in the sport and country. And now it's the after show. Since there's no wrap up this week, Time Out came out with their list of best towns in the world and Yarraville in Melbourne and Merrickville in Sydney both made the top 10 list. So it made me really happy and think about when we can all travel again in future. And remember the newsletter is coming out in a few days. So if you'd still like to sign up, just shoot me an email at AFL footy obsessed and I'll include you in it so that's it for me thanks for hanging around for the show i'd love if you'd leave a review and share afl obsessed with someone you think might like it too but thanks for listening stay safe and healthy check on your friends and neighbors we'll get through this like footy i'm virtually hugging you and we'll talk footy soon